Welcome to the Forensic Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Fiona Tuck. I'm a nutritional medicine practitioner and a qualified skin therapist for over 25 years. The Forensic Nutritionist Podcast takes an investigative approach into all things nutrition, gut health and skin, using qualified experts to bring you information that you can trust. We are all unique. The information presented herein is not intended to diagnose, to treat or cure disease. Please seek professional medical guidance prior to modifying any diet, exercise or lifestyle program. Let us begin. On the podcast today, we have Stephanie Valakis. Stephanie is an accredited practicing dietitian and a nutritionist, and she's also known as the dietologist. Stephanie has a special interest in reproductive and prenatal nutrition. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about a condition that plagues many women, endometriosis. So welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having a chat with us today about endometriosis. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for having me. So, Stephanie, before we get into talking about endometriosis, because I know it's a real issue for many, many women, can you um, just tell us briefly why is it that you are so interested in this area of reproductive health in particular? Yeah, I think my interest for um, hormone health and nutrition in this area kind of stems from being a woman myself, struggling to deal with hormones as a late adolescent, irregular periods, acne, and trying to find some kind of solution. Um, I wanted to know if there was ways to manage my own health and through my passion for nutrition. And that's really how I got into women's health and fertility nutrition. And I think the other aspect to that was I was also very interested in pediatric health and nutrition. Um, and I thought, you know, what if, what if we can get in really early and help kids be healthier, which is something I still, I still do. But when I started looking at the research, it's actually begins with healthier women and um, healthier couples before they conceive that really sets up children and families for a reduced risk of chronic diseases, which include allergies, asthma, obesity, heart disease, and type 2 diabetes. Absolutely. And I think it's an area that, you know, a lot of people, we're just beginning, I think, in sort of the general population to realise that it's not just about what we're putting into our bodies now. It's about what we put into our bodies that can actually affect future generations to come. And I, I think a lot of people are only just beginning to grasp that, that concept. Yeah. So I, I think it's um, a wonderful thing that, that you're doing. Now, when it comes to endometriosis, this is something that, I mean, I'm very thankful. It's not a condition that I've personally suffered from, but I do have many friends that do suffer from it and, and really have struggled with this condition. It can be such a painful problem for so many women. Can you explain to us, Stephanie, um, what is actually endometriosis and, and who does tend to suffer, uh, suffer from, the, from this? Yep. So endometriosis, or endo for short, is a chronic condition and it affects a woman's reproductive system and sometimes other parts of her body. It affects about one in 10 Australian women of reproductive age. So that's 10% of our female population 
from when they get their period to menopause. So it's, it's Mm. a pretty big number of people that we're looking at. Um, The symptoms and severity of endometriosis vary from woman to woman. So having more progressive disease, which are classified in stages one through four, doesn't necessarily mean worse symptoms. So for example, you could have a woman with stage one, so less progressive endo, and she is in agony with every menstrual cycle. And you can have a woman with stage three or stage four endometriosis with very few symptoms, um, but not always, but that's not always the case. So the stage of the disease doesn't necessarily impact somebody's quality of life, um, but it can. So endometriosis from a science perspective is where the endometrium, which is meant to grow inside the uterus, starts to grow outside the uterus. So this can be anywhere. It can be on the ovaries, inside or on the fallopian tubes, on the bladder, on the bowel. And there's even been uh, cases where endo has been found in the lungs before. So it can really stretch out throughout the, that thoracic region of the body. Just incredible that the, the body... It is. It is. Um, and so just like the endometrium in the uterus, at, it, you know, at the time of that time of the month, the lining sheds causes bleeding for some parts of the endometrium, um, meaning that bleeding can be occurring in a number of different sites of the body. And the other way that it can cause um, pain is because these kind of patches of endometriosis are sticking all the organs together, which can be quite painful. Um, The exact causes at this time are unknown. So we are not sure why some women develop endometriosis and some don't. There's lots of different theories and potential implicators. um, But at this time, the research still hasn't produced some um, etiology of what is causing endo. So for those of you who may be listening and thinking, oh, well, what are the symptoms of endometriosis? And, you know, do I or do some of my friends potentially have this condition given it's so common? And some of the symptoms include pelvic pain, which tends to be worse during menstruation or sometimes around the time of ovulation or both. So this pain can be potentially debilitating Uh, It can mean days off work or school or uni or sometimes hospitalisation for pain management. So it can definitely take a big toll on a woman's life. There's also heavy periods, uh, pain during sex, urination or passing bowel motions, depending on where the endometriosis is. And other symptoms of endo um, can include diarrhoea, bloating, constipation, back pain, fatigue and weight changes. So... Yeah, it's not something you'd, you'd sign up for. And I'm sure any woman with endo would attest to that. I guess what I see a lot in my practice is kind of two comorbid presentations of endo, it's, which is those with endometriosis who are also experiencing infertility, which affects one in six Australian couples. And this is because of some hormone changes and also the changes in the receptivity in the uterine lining for an embryo to implant. There's also other complicating factors like adhesions from surgeries, endometriomas, so big cysts of endometriosis, which can block the sperm getting to the egg or the egg travelling down into the uterus. 
And then the other presentation that I some that I often get is um, symptoms of endo and also irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. And these two conditions can often be confused because as I just said, a lot of the symptoms, um, like the bowel symptoms, could be easily just mistaken for IBS. Mm. So on average, it takes a woman about seven years in Australia to receive a diagnosis of endometriosis. So that's an average. So it could be seven or more years living with painful symptoms or an unknown reason as to why you can't start a family. And, Steph, and I think, yeah. I didn't interrupt you there, but why do you think that is? Why, why does it take such a long time to get that diagnosis? Yeah, I think, I think it's a few different reasons. The diagnostic process isn't easy. Um, it's not as simple as a blood test or an ultrasound. There are getting better with ultrasounds to try and detect endo, but it's not a perfect or gold standard method. Whereas you actually need to undergo laparoscopic surgery or keyhole surgery to actually go in and visualize endometriosis. So I think that is one of the main reasons why diagnosis is taking so long. I think the second reason is that I think we live in a society where, especially for women, we grew up where periods were painful. You know, that's, that's normal, isn't it? Um, it's normal to have cramps and want to be in bed and, um, and just, you know, live with that pain, but it's not normal. And, um, we do, and also we, we have to talk about heavy bleeding as well in our periods and that's also not normal. So, you know, if you're having a heavy menstrual cycle or you're having incredibly painful periods to the point where you need to take days off work or school or other commitments, um, definitely checking in with your GP or gynecologist about endometriosis. Yeah, that's great feedback. I think it's also maybe perhaps we're only now just really talking about it more and there's more awareness of the condition, whereas before perhaps um, people didn't talk so much about periods and about pain and, you know, what is mm -hmm. And, and what's normal. So it is great that I think this condition is getting more media awareness now and, and there are people like yourself that are actually talking about it so that women are educated to know what is normal and, and what is not normal. I think that's yeah. a huge, a huge help. And um, you did mention about, you know, I guess some of the potential health risks such as um, infertility and we, we can see things like IBS which I think a lot of people don't actually realize that that IBS and, and endometriosis can go hand in hand when it when it comes to en endometriosis are there other health conditions I mean presumably if there is heavy bleeding there would be um, a potential for low iron and, and conditions mm. like that as well Totally. So yeah, definitely in practice, I see lots of iron deficiency um, and sometimes even B12 deficiencies. Um, not that I can, I mean, it makes logical sense, but the literature hasn't really explored that at this point. I think the biggest health risk and the one that most women think about when they receive an, an endo diagnosis is about infertility. Yeah. And 20 to 50% of infertile women have endometriosis. So a pretty big statistic wow. it's up to half of women showing up to a fertility clinic have endo and the other half is generally pcos so not always but they're the two big players when we're talking about fertility 
There are other health risks, um, which may include an increased risk of abnormal cholesterol levels and heart disease for women under 40. Mm-hmm. Um, according to a, a, a secondary analysis they did in the Nurses Health Study, which is a really big American study, um, there's no like mechanism as to why they just saw this trend. Um, in terms of cancers, which is another common concern, there is a very small increase in risk of some rare types of ovarian cancer, but it is less than 1%. So it is still very unlikely to develop this type of cancer. Their research regarding other types of cancers like breast, endometrial cancers and melanoma are currently inconclusive. There has not been much research into cancer risk in endo as in general. But there was a very interesting um, paper just released in June this year that showed that endo and autoimmune diseases seem to be linked. Mm. So they looked at a whole range of autoimmune diseases, which included lupus, Shulgin syndrome, which results in incredibly dry eyes and dry mouth, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune thyroid disorders, celiac disease, multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and also Addison's disease, which is adrenal insufficiency. So, and then we also have to think about that women with endo are often undergoing more surgeries and health procedures than the average woman might be. So there's also associated health risks with that as well. Mm. So, yeah, I think there hasn't been heaps of research. I mean, this 2019 paper has just come out about autoimmune diseases, and I think that's going to, you know, start supporting this autoimmune theory for for endometriosis as well. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating the more more we find out. So with endometriosis, is this something that sort of starts early on or can it actually occur at any age? I think for most women, they tell, they report a history of very heavy periods and painful periods as an adolescent, Mm. but they didn't know that that was abnormal. Um, Not all, but for others, it could be a very, you know, they could have had their whole adolescent life and early adult life but really they had no idea because they didn't have many symptoms until they tried to start a family um, and they're having trouble so I think there is no one size fits all as to when it comes about I've had patients where they didn't find out till after they naturally conceived their two children so completely variable um but I think it really comes down to if it is an autoimmune linked thing, we know that autoimmune diseases can come up at any time and we don't really know what the triggers are, like celiac disease, for example. Yes, absolutely. So with endometriosis, we know that it can potentially affect fertility um, because of the the lining of, of the womb can be, or uterus can be affected. How does it affect, does it affect actual hormone balance? Yes. So endometriosis loves estrogen. It's an estrogen-loving disease. And because estrogen peaks just before you ovulate, um, that's why you can sometimes get a spike in your endo symptoms around ovulation. 
Um, we think that women with endo tend to produce more estrogen than other women or that they're just more sensitive so they have more receptors mm -hmm. to estrogen in their body. So they're just more sensitive to the amounts of estrogen that they are producing. Um, given that there's also the link with IBS, we think as well there's that element of visceral hypersensitivity. So um, the ability to experience more pain of the internal organs that they experience more intensely than somebody else. So it's not that there is necessarily more gas or more estrogen. It's just they're more sensitive to the, the pain of that. Um, so there's that also idea as well. In terms of the therapies for hormone balance in endometriosis, the most common ones are um, the oral contraceptive pill. Um, but there's also newer therapies like Vizan. And Vizan was brought to Australia specifically for endometriosis. It was used overseas for many years, but it was not accessible on the PBS here. Yeah. And Vizan is a progesterone pill that helps to reduce the effects of estrogen because they compete yeah. on the tissues and can help reduce the pain associated with endo. Um, so some women say that when they get when they do get pregnant, that because their progesterone is high and their estrogen is low, that they don't have any symptoms of endo, um, and they think that they're quote unquote cured of endometriosis. But it's not. It's just a temporary pause button um, on the symptoms um, after delivery. Soon after, you generally get the symptoms of endometriosis back. So really, the the only treatment really is if i've understood you correctly is really either um you know medication sort of progesterone or you know taking the the pill at this stage yeah or surgery to physically remove the patches and endometriomas is a very common um management strategy and it's all management there's no treatment there's no cure there's just management um um, at this time, unfortunately. And that's just because we don't know what is causing endometriosis. And when it comes to diet, I mean, you're a, you're a dietitian, so, yes. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a nutritionist, so we're, we're all about the diet. But in, in your opinion, how important is diet when it comes to the reproductive system and, and even sort of inflammatory conditions and, and autoimmune conditions? Yeah. So obviously my opinion is slightly biased being a dietitian, but I think diet is super important when it comes to managing hormonal conditions, inflammatory conditions, um, which endometriosis is, of course, both. Um, so diet and lifestyle are the key factors that you can control um, and harness to kind of empower yourself um, on your own health journey and whatever that, whatever that looks like. But I find that there's so many elements of um, a woman's health when she's diagnosed with endo that seems so out of her hands, um, you know, in the hands of medical professionals that you can feel quite out of control. Mm. And so I think diet is really helpful um, and we know it does can help with the symptoms of endo and manage that chronic inflammation that underlies it, but also gives you back some of that control aspect to your health. So that's why I really enjoy working in this space because it's that empowering um, ability that diet and lifestyle has for women. Yes. So, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So if, if we're looking at um, foods to minimise, because I, I don't like to say never, ever eat these foods because um, we've, we've got to live, um, but, but when we're looking at foods to minimise for somebody with endometriosis, what, what tips could you give there? Yeah, so I think, you know, we always try and focus on what to add to the diet rather than what to subtract. Um, but there's definitely a few things that you can definitely work on at least reducing rather than completely eliminating. So the first group of food, um, which is probably a little bit controversial, um, is soy and other foods rich in phytoestrogens. So these are plant-based estrogens that have a weak binding effect to the estrogen receptors in our body. Now, like I just said, um, endo is an estrogen-loving disease. Um, so you don't want any more estrogen affecting your body. Um, so reducing your intake of major sources of phytoestrogens like Tofu, soybeans, miso and tempeh might be a good idea, but there is a caveat to that. If you're following a vegan or very, very plant-based diet and you're relying on these as a key source of high-quality protein, you definitely need to speak to an accredited practicing dietitian before eliminating anything or reducing anything because you could be really compromising your dietary quality by doing that. Mm. Um, another dietary strategy which has been shown to help reduce estrogen is reducing your intake of saturated fats, which is something that we know we should be doing anyway. We've known it for years and years and years. Um, but a 1990 study showed that reducing saturated fat by 50% in your diet reduced estrogen by 20%. So it doesn't sound like heaps, but that could potentially translate to a very big impact on the life of a woman living with endo. Mm -hmm. So the key dietary sources of trans and saturated fats to look at include butter, high fat cuts of meat, particularly red meats, processed meats, chicken skin, your cakes, pastries, biscuits, coconut oil and its products and palm oil and its products, other animal fats like ghee or lard, and takeaway foods generally tend to have a higher saturated fat content as well. Now, the other foods that I'm commonly asked about or kind of food categories is alcohol. Um, we know that women with endo drink more alcohol than women without endo. We're not sure why. We're not sure why. I, I, I'm thinking maybe a pain management strategy. But I wonder why if it is just because it's a coping mechanism or whether it's that catch-22 that the alcohol could be worsening the endo. Yes, totally. So I think... You know, no one's no one's pointed uh, pointed to that particular idea in literature, but I mean, we can all kind of join the dots. Um, we're not, uh, you know, we don't know the why, but there's been an association. So large amounts of alcohol is probably not the best idea, but the research jury is still out on whether it's making things better or worse. Um, the theory is by putting your liver under the pump to get rid of the alcohol in your body, you have less ability to try and convert estrogen into its um, waste products to be excreted yeah. by the bowel, which is ideally the process we want to help support um, so that we can minimise how much estrogen is flying around and feeding, feeding the endo. Yeah. So... If you're definitely using, if you feel like you're using alcohol as a pain management strategy, I think go have a, a chat to your healthcare team for some other strategies. 
The goal is limit to one standard drink per day with at least two to three alcohol-free days for women. Um, but even just switching to a more antioxidant-rich um, alcohol like red wine could be a good first step because antioxidants are really important in the diet for um, women with endo. The other group of foods that come up because so many women with endometriosis do actually have IBS as well. Um, so FODMATs or fermentable oligosaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. I know you've talked about FODMATs on your podcast before with Chloe McLeod. Yes. So um, if you are interested, maybe go and have a listen of that podcast as well. Um, but these carbohydrates can exacerbate symptoms of IBS for some for some women. So um, you definitely want to be working with a healthcare professional on this diet because it's, it's not simple um, and you definitely want to be getting advice around that. Um, the other diet that has shown some benefit is also the gluten-free diet. So um, there have been some studies done showing improvements in symptoms for women with endo going on a gluten-free diet. Um, it might be something you want to trial. Um, but again, I think it's really important to get that supervision aspect. And just for some, just for some stats, um, the low FODMAP diet can help manage um, the bowel symptoms. 50% improvement for women with endometriosis after four weeks on the low FODMAP diet. 50% in the... Um IBS type symptoms or the endometriosis? Yes. Yeah, the IBS. In, in the IBS type symptoms. Um, and the gluten free diet, 75% of women reported a significant change in their pain. None reported worsening of pain after 12 months on the gluten free diet. There was also improvements in physical function, general health, vitality, and social functioning, as well as mental health in all patients that participated so 100 percent of women so it's and it's been replicated a couple times the gluten-free diet so we don't know why the gluten-free diet might be helpful is it gluten itself the protein or is it the carbohydrate fructan found in wheat which is a fodmap um but then again they wouldn't have eliminated garlic and onion because it was an italian study we can assume that that was included which is a key source of fructans so that might be a strategy you want to explore, but definitely seek some advice because you don't want to have potentially celiac disease and eliminating gluten before getting testing done. Like, like we discussed earlier, there might be an increased risk of celiac disease. Yeah, interesting. That's so interesting. And I know some um, naturopaths, for example, you know, one of their approaches is, is gluten and dairy when, when treating endo. What are your mm. thoughts on, on dairy? Is there, is there any studies there to support that? Yeah, so dairy-free diets for managing endo have not been well-researched at this time. Um, we actually know that in terms of the risk of developing endometriosis, that dairy is... Uh, dairy consumption is associated with a reduced risk of developing endo. And that's potentially due to the vitamin D component of dairy milk. But despite popular belief, dairy is not considered to be an inflammatory food. Um, it offers quite a lot of nutrition from a high quality protein, calcium, vitamin D, magnesium, B vitamins, which is good for bone and general health. Um, unfortunately, most Australian women don't get enough dairy, especially our younger women 
Um, and this is increasing their risk of low bone mineral density and osteoporosis. And whilst we think that might be a far off, um, like it's, it's so far away, I'll get osteoporosis in my 70s, whatever. Um, increasingly, I'm seeing osteopenia, which is low bone mineral density and osteoporosis in women before they even hit their 30th birthday. So this is something we do really need to be careful of making you know, making recommendations about um, and also looking at the evidence. And then if we are going to eliminate dairy, we need to look at the nutrients that we're going to lose and replacing those appropriately through other parts of the diet or through supplements as appropriate. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more because I, I do see a lot of people um, that have cut dairy out of the diet and are turning to things such as plant milks or coconut yogurt, for example, and not actually realizing that they're not getting the same nutrients. So I yeah. do think it's important before cutting any food groups out to find out, first of all, why you're cutting them out. Is yeah. there a medical reason to do so and um, if you are to make sure you are getting that that um, nutrient intake elsewhere because although we can get calcium from a lot of plant-based foods the amount that we need to consume I, I don't think people realize quite how much is required to get the same as what you would be getting from dairy so yeah yeah and it's like, it's like iron. People think, oh, I'll just eat spinach. I'll get my iron in that way. But when you break it down for people and show how much spinach you'd actually need and the absorbability of plant yeah. um, iron, for example, it's the same thing for calcium. It's incredibly, you have to be very focused to get enough um, calcium in from plants. So it's not impossible, but it definitely has to be a well-planned diet. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of, alternatives quote-unquote alternatives on the market are not suitable are not equivalent to a dairy product even though it looks like a yogurt or it looks like a cheese doesn't mean it has the nutrition of the original dairy product absolutely absolutely yeah. so if we're looking at um you know, great advice there what kind of foods would we be wanting to increase because i know both yeah. You and I are massive fans of things like extra virgin olive oil. Oh, I could just talk about it all day, Fiona. <laughs> it's one of my <laughs> favourite <laughs> topics. <laughs> um, yes, well, I will definitely talk about extra virgin olive oil because that is, that is a really key component of um, things to include in the diet for endometriosis. But before I get to that, I think one of the other ones that's pretty big player when it comes to endo is fiber. So fiber, especially from cruciferous or brassica veg. So we're talking broccoli, cauliflower, kale, bok choy, turnips, Brussels sprouts, cabbages. They contain indoles, which is a particular type of antioxidant. And this helps to support the liver's natural ability to make estrogen, the active form, into the form that is required to be transported to the bowel, to be passed through your bowel motion, basically, and eliminated from the body. So you do need enough fiber. And those cruciferous vegetables have been shown to help support estrogen reduction. Um, but fiber from fruits, veg, nuts, seeds, whole grains, legumes and beans, 
those plant foods are still important because you still need to support healthy bowel motion. So if you're really constipated, the estrogen isn't necessarily leaving the body. So that's really important. That's a great point to make, actually. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of cruciferous vegetables and supporting liver health and um, estrogen clearance. But I think, yeah, that point of if we're not sort of emptying the bowels regularly, then that's going to affect the estrogen as well. Yeah. Totally. From a pain management perspective, uh, prostaglandins are generally the culprits when it comes to painful menstrual cramps. And that's for women with endo and women without endo. So if you've got painful menstrual cramps, um, but you don't have endometriosis, this could still be a helpful thing to try. So these prostaglandins are chemical messengers and there are a few different types. There's some that are pro-inflammatory, so they favor inflammation. And there are some that are anti-inflammatory, so they help oppose inflammation. So what you want to do is try and support the, give them the base materials to make more of those anti-inflammatory prostaglandins. They're less likely to cause you grief. So you want to increase your um, omega-3 fatty acids. Of course, your fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, and legumes, like we've already discussed, that can help support the production of anti-inflammatory prostaglandins. So what that translates to is oily fish a couple times a week, even up to three times a week. So we're talking salmon, trout, sardines, tuna to a lesser degree, unless you're really checking the label of your canned tuna. Um, other sources of omega-3, but they're not as efficient, are chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, and hemp seeds, because these are ALA forms of omega-3. And our body is really rubbish at converting yeah. the ALA omega-3s into EPA and DHA, which are the marine type of omega-3s, which are doing their best work in the body. So be mindful of that. If you don't eat fish for whatever reason, have a chat to a dietitian or nutritionist about how you can get enough omega-3 through diet. Um, or potentially supplementation. Um, another consideration, and this is probably a little bit on the side of controversial, but the evidence goes where the evidence goes, so we have to talk about it, is organic products and produce. So if it's possible for you and if you're financially able to, it might be a good idea to try and switch to some organic produce and products. And this is because the dioxins and pesticides that um, us, you know, sprayed on our produce and our food has been associated with endometriosis and its symptoms. So not only the risk of developing, but also the symptoms if you are already diagnosed. So I think uh, the thought is that it interferes with the hormonal pathways and contributes to oxidative stress, which is not the state we want to be in. Oxidative stress usually causes cell damage. And so this is why some studies show that fruit consumption is actually associated with worsening endometriosis. But we don't actually think it's the fruit in and of itself. We think maybe that fruit has a higher pesticide load. So by choosing organic where possible, this may be one way to help mitigate that. But I don't want to discourage people from eating enough fruit and veg, even if it's conventional, non-organic, because you still get the benefits of fiber and antioxidants anyway. And that is still better than not eating enough fruit and vegetables. So the organic is a nice to have. Yes, there's some evidence to support it, but don't be afraid of just eating conventional um, 
because, you know, don't feel scared off because you can't afford organic, then I won't eat any fruits and vegetables at all because that's, that's definitely not the message I'm trying to send. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, that, you know, there are things you can do as well. It might not be that you eat all organic and some people can't afford to do that either, but there are some um, fruits and vegetables that are more heavily sprayed um, yeah. with pesticides, so maybe avoiding those things like apples tend to be more, more heavily sprayed, something with a thicker skin, bananas tend to be, you know, you, you're quite yeah. okay getting a, a non-organic yeah. banana because they're, they're protected by the, the thick skin. The thicker skin, yeah. yeah. And, and I think as well, them. just washing really well. And I think there has been some research um, that, you know, soaking your produce in baking soda water can help just reduce the pesticide load a little. So even if it's just doing that, that's one simple step that you can do and it also makes your food preparation way easier having washed all your veggies ahead of time. Um, so, yeah, that's another idea. I guess from the inflammatory perspective of endometriosis, because it is a chronic inflammatory condition as well as a hormonal um, dysfunction, is we want to aim for a diet really rich in antioxidants, again, to try and mitigate the oxidative damage, which, like I said, is causing cell damage and if you're trying to conceive this oxidative damage can potentially be causing um, damage to your eggs or even damage to the sperm that's coming into your system so we want to make sure that we're getting an abundance of colorful fruit and veggies so red orange yellow blues purples green and white now people always ask me oh i can't like yes that sounds great eat the rainbow and all that jazz but what does that actually look like so i thought i'd include some examples to at least get your brain sticking over <laughs> and thinking about it on your next grocery shop so red Think tomatoes, capsicums, watermelon, strawberries, orange, think carrot, pumpkin, sweet potato, orange, and mandarins. Yellow can include squash, corn, yellow capsicums, lemons, bananas, pineapple, golden, kiwi fruit, and stone fruit. Blues and purples can include blueberries, blackberries, red cabbage, purple sweet potato, eggplant, and beetroot. Greens is, everyone thinks of the greens, broccoli, spinach, lettuce, cabbage, Chinese veg, rocket and avocado. And don't forget white as well. Potatoes, cauliflower, onion, garlic, pears, mushrooms and stone fruit. So from a practical perspective, what I get my clients to do is aim for three colours of fruit or veg at your main meals to help give you a variety of antioxidants across the week and branch out and buy some new in-season produce of a different colour. Now, the other things to consider when we're talking antioxidants and anti-inflammatory types of diets is you want to really up your herb and spice intake for some extra antioxidants, especially turmeric and ginger, as these have been the most well-studied for their anti-inflammatory properties. There has also been research to support that diets rich in fruits and vegetables, uh, people tend to have lower C-reactive protein levels or CRP, which is a key blood test marker of inflammation, which tends to be elevated in women with endometriosis. And as I've already said, uh, a diet rich in omega-3s and minimal in saturated and trans fats is also a key component of anti-inflammatory eating as well as vitamin D. So making sure that you're getting your blood tested at least annually to check your vitamin D and either 
upping your intake by getting some vitamin D sources from food, which is obviously the least efficient source. So you can now buy vitamin D um, mushrooms, um, salmon, eggs, but getting enough sunlight. And if that's not an option for you, you need to discuss supplementation with your doctor and dietitian. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it always surprises me how many people don't know what their vitamin D levels are or they don't get them checked regularly. So, you know, I, I would recommend people getting that checked every, oh, every sure. year. Um, every year Medicare covers it in Australia. You can get it done at least once a year under yeah. Medicare. You know, and, and being aware during winter, that's when the, the levels do tend to, to drop. Sure. So, yeah. Um, it, it's interesting you say that because my, my D was was high. I'm, I'm quite conscious of, of keeping it high. And then this winter, I was like, oh, my D's really high. I'm good. Just got yeah. it. And it's dropped right back down. Um, <laughs> Too so much time indoors on yeah. the computer. <laughs> None of it. None of us are um, foolproof. So again, you know, even I've sort of had to um, look at getting getting my D back up there. I mean, it wasn't terribly low, but it was still below where it really does need to be. So that's um, that's really something that I think is important to to recommend. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. You've really covered some great advice with us today, Stephanie. I think, you know, starting at the basics is is a good point. You know, looking at the diet um, first and foremost, looking at what we can tweak um, and what we can add in is always a, a great place to start and looking at getting more anti-inflammatory foods, upping the coloured fruits and vegetables and really upping the fiber and cruciferous veggies is also really, really important when it comes to, to looking at helping, I guess, um, endo. But for, for anyone that does suffer from endometriosis and is really looking at someone that can help to guide them, that, that really does specialize in this area, how can people contact you and find out more about you? Yep, so you can contact me through a multitude of ways these days. So my website is thedietologist.com.au. I have a number of women's health and fertility-focused blog posts. I've almost hit, I think, 100 blog posts on there. Um, so there is plenty of free resources available there. And I also... Fantastic website as well. Um, your, your blogs are really really practical and really useful. So I, I highly recommend people check you out. Yeah. So I'm based in Sydney. Um, so my private practice is in Newtown and soon to be in Bondi Junction as well. And I also offer virtual consultations. Um, at the moment, I'm offering a free 15-minute discovery calls to see if we're a good fit, see if I can help you reach your goals. And yeah, I love working with women, um, women with endo, women with PCOS, women with IBS and couples trying to start a family and the, the key areas that I really work with and focus on. And you will see that throughout all my social media, which is at the underscore dietologist and on my website. This is the, this is my passion and what I help, what I help so many people do. And I'd love to help more people. Um, so yeah, if you'd love to, if you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to help you. Fantastic. Well, you're already helping a lot of people and I, I know there's many more people that, that you will be helping in the future. Just before we, we finish up, are there any 
new exciting plans that you're working on, you're moving or also going to be consulting out of Bondi Junction. I know some yes. you run um, workshops as well. Yes, yes. So trying to get a few fertility nutrition workshops running in Sydney with one of the doctors that I um, share rooms with, Dr. Natasha Andriatis. So keep an eye out for those on my socials. And I'm also continuing to grow my Facebook community, which is Fertility Friendly Food and providing them with reliable nutrition advice for women who are trying to conceive. And yeah, it's basically new clinic is the big focus at the moment. Um, but yeah, always trying to build on the, the free resources that are available via my website and social media as well. So people can have access to high quality information without the confusion. Absolutely. And, and there is so much confusion out there. So knowing that there's a trusted sources out there and, and for anyone that does listen to this podcast, I do only ever talk to trusted sources um, but, and I personally recommend um, so that it is all about bringing trusted, trusted nutrition advice. So Stephanie, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Um, wealth of information and I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking again to you, to you very soon, but wishing you all the very best with your, your new practice in Bondi Junction. Thanks Fiona. Thanks for having me today.